Hello, I am Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. And this week, we are talking to Professor Richard Seaford about mystery cults in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Richard, thank you very much for being on the podcast again. Pleasure. Much appreciated. Um, Mystery cults are of great interest to students of esotericism, chiefly because the theme of the mystery becomes transformed later on through Christianity, through other ideas around esotericism and hidden mysteries and so on, and eventually by the idea of mysticism. But they're also fascinating in their own right, the original and very unique and very odd cultural institutions from which all that stuff arises. So maybe you can tell us something about these, the actual original mystery cults, before mysticism had been invented, before any of this stuff had been added on to the tradition. Yes, it is important indeed to distinguish mystery cult from mysticism. We tend to associate mysticism with the contemplative state of an individual. Mystery cult could hardly be more different. It very often has a group dimension, and it's not a matter of contemplation, it's a matter of action. Mm, Ritual action. Ritual action, yes. Is it possible to give a succinct definition of what we mean by a mystery cult? No, alas, it isn't, because mystery cult and mystery are used of a very wide range of phenomena in Greco-Roman antiquity. And these phenomena differ in their function, in the gods that preside over them, in the kind of people who become initiates, in what they undergo and what they aspire to. Moreover, there are many different cultures in the ancient Mediterranean that contribute to what are called mystery cults. In particular, after Alexander the Great conquers much of Asia, then Asia is opened up to a level of syncretism, of um, cults joining together, fusing between Asian cults and Greek cults, which had existed before, but not to the same level. Alexander opening up the East means that there is a vast amount of movement of religious practices and ideas within uh, the Mediterranean and much of, um, much of Western Asia. At that point, of course, the situation becomes even more complicated and mystery cult, as it's used, refers to a very wide range of different phenomena. The question then is, can it be used sensibly in a, in a narrower way? Uh, can you define mystery cult in such a way that you're sort of clearing a path through the thicket of phenomena that are called mystery cults? And I think probably you can. And one way of doing it would be to say that mystery cult, or at least an interesting form of mystery cult, um, is a ritual in which people undergo a rehearsal for a rehearsal of death in order to obtain eventually a better fate in the next world. Now, mystery cult can do many other things. It can bring benefits in this life, for example. But the idea of undergoing a kind of death in order to be filled with hope for fate after the eventual real death 
is, I think, central to a number of mystery cults, um, particularly the ones I'm most familiar with, which is actually before Alexander conquers Asia in the classical period rather than in the Hellenistic period, where, as I say, things become even more complicated. But if you take the Eleusinian mysteries and the mysteries of Dionysus, Eleusinian mysteries in honour of Demeter and her daughter Persephone, or Corre as she's called, the Dionysiac mysteries in honour of Dionysus, but often associated with the, the, uh, the figure of Orpheus. If you take those two kinds of mysteries, of course the Dionysiac mysteries are celebrated in different forms across the Mediterranean. Uh, nevertheless, they do have a certain amount in common. They both seem to be a kind of rehearsal for death. And along with that, there is a structure of the ritual process which is shared by those mystery cults and some other mystery cults, in which the initiate uh, suffers anxiety, um, isolation, and uh, uh, pain even, distress of various kinds, which are eventually replaced by a, um, an event, typically the introduction of light into the darkness, which is the sign of a transition to a happy fate in the next world. So the, the ritual involves a transition from isolation to membership of a community, from anxiety to well-being, and from ignorance to knowledge. And those three transitions are at the heart of a certain kind of mystery cult and are partially embodied in a whole number of other mystery cults as well. But it's that transition which helps us to make some sense of what is important about at least some of these mystery cults, and that's certainly what happened at Eleusis and in some Dionysiac cults. So, of course, if the initiate is going to be terrified initially so as to become happy eventually, then the ritual has to be secret. If you know that, well, you're not going to be killed and you're not going to suffer greatly, but you are going to end up in a happy place, in a meadow with beautiful sounds, consulting with pure men, as Plutarch puts it in a famous description of the Eleusinian mysteries, then if you know that's all going to happen before you are subjected to initiation, it's not going to be that terrifying. But it has to be terrifying, it has to be distressing, so that you undergo the right emotional state at the end. That brings us to the question, if the mysteries were secret, which the name would seem to indicate right? Or at least notionally they were secret. In fact, the, the theme of an inviolable secrecy that's actually protected by the gods themselves shows up in already in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, right? Demeters will seal your lips. So you, you can't, it's not just that you, you shouldn't reveal the secrets of the mysteries, you can't somehow. This is the idea, this is the sort of thematic topos. Um, if that is the case, how then do we know about these rituals which you've just outlined for us? Because you said there's a there's a period of darkness, there's a period of light, there's various other little details that you've kind of mentioned specifically. How would we know any of this if it truly is the great secret of antiquity? Well, that's a good question. And the fact is that there are some texts, very few, which give you some indication of what went on in the ritual. And I've referred to one already, Plutarch, fragment 178, a famous text, in which he says that the soul on the point of death is like somebody being initiated into the great mysteries. At first there's 
wandering around in fear, sweat, distress, uh, darkness, and so on and so forth. And then there's a, uh, a beautiful light, and the initiates become um, initiated into, become part of an idyllic scenario in which they're uh, consorting with pure men, and there are lovely sounds and appearances and so on. And he does, he does, he does say that. So that is actually um, giving away at least some of the secret. Again, in Apuleius's account in the Metamorphoses of, or Golden Ass of mm. Book Eleven of the initiation of Lucius, Lucius describes what happens to him when he's initiated, goes down to the underworld and sees a, a sun shining in the underworld and so on and so forth. And uh, they're certainly worth looking at these passages. It may be, of course, that they're in fact revealing comparatively little uh, in proportion to what there was. We will never know that. Um, but there are a number of other texts as well which allude to and um, evoke without revealing the experiences of initiation which would have very powerful associations for those people reading the text or watching the drama who had been initiated and in particular drama is an interesting case because we're told by quite a good source that Aeschylus the tragedian was prosecuted for profaning the mysteries this is the Eleusinian mysteries in four of his plays um, and uh, he was acquitted but nevertheless what that tells you is something that actually you could have inferred by looking in a scholarly way at some of the texts of these plays, which is that there are allusions to the process of mystic initiation. He may not have revealed very much, but this shows you what the situation is. This is mystic initiation at Eleusis, which was a big civic ritual. Hundreds of people probably were initiated every year. A large proportion of the Athenian population, and that included women, slaves as well as men, and indeed foreigners, non-Athenians, were initiated. The only bar to initiation was, well, you had to understand Greek and you should not have blood on your hands. Everybody else, including slaves, could be initiated. And large numbers of Athenians were initiated. It was a civic festival. It was important for the well-being of the community. And yet, it was secret. Well, in that situation, it's not going to be that secret. Things will emerge. Another kind of revelation of the mysteries is in Clement of Alexandria, who's a Christian father, and uh, he had been, it seems, initiated at Eleusis, and then he was converted to Christianity. So he thought, well, I'm at liberty now, because I'm a Christian, to reveal all this nonsense that I went through when I was initiated at Eleusis. So he does that, and he's, very interestingly, he talks about the Dionysiac mysteries, he talks about the Bacchae as embodying a... Um, mystery cult, and it's all nonsense, of course. The real mystery, he says, is Jesus Christ, mm. not this drunken Pentheus who sees two sons and two cities of thieves. Uh, but why does he say that? Because, of course, he says it because the Bacchae is an embodiment of the mystery cult. It's not, it has never been um, obvious to editors and translators and writers about the Bacchae that this is what the Bacchae is, but it is. And what Euripides is doing is using the myth which is itself an ideological of, explanatory of, the ritual, dramatizing it. And in doing so, he's constantly evoking mystery cult, evoking the ritual, without actually giving it all away. But the people 
who have been initiated will understand the evocations and they will be profoundly moved by them because being initiated into the mysteries is a very intense and profound experience uh, not in all mystery cults to be sure but if it is your way of ensuring yourself salvation in the next world by undergoing a death in this one a fictive death in this one then it's going to be a profoundly emotional experience so for Euripides in the Bacchae to evoke this throughout the play and in particular to represent a character Pentheus has all the negative emotions of the initiate he resists the cult he does all sorts of strange things which I can go into in more detail if you like which his name even well his name of course means man of, man of suffering but much of his otherwise inexplicable character and otherwise completely inexplicable experiences what he does in the house um, rushing around in the darkness and uh, attacking the light that Dionysus makes within the house and all sorts of things like that correspond almost exactly to Plutarch's account of mystic initiation. Even seeing double, which nobody's properly understood, in my view, is nothing to do with being drunk. He's not drunk. So why does he see double? Well, why do you see double? Um, you can actually see double if you're drunk. We have to be very drunk, and Pentheus is clearly not drunk at all. Also, if you hit your head in a certain way, I am told, then something can happen to the inside of your head, which means that you see double. But in no other circumstances do you see double, except when you look at something in a mirror. You can then see the same thing twice. In Aeschylus's version of the similar myth in the Lycogaea, Dionysus came on carrying a mirror. A mirror is important in Dionysiac mysteries. It's there in the Villa of the Mysteries at Pompeii, which is a beautiful visual representation of mystery cult, without, of course, giving the whole thing away. Um, and it's, I believe, uh, responsible for the famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where we are said to see through a glass darkly, which actually is translation of the Greek, Tiesoptro in Enigmity, which means through a mirror in a riddle. Mirrors and riddles were both used in mystic initiation for the same function, which is to, as it were, confuse the initiate with a partial image of what is then finally revealed, face to face, as it were. In so do you think before. this was some kind of smoke and mirrors? That, that in some way a mirror was actually used as a kind of stage prop in the ritual? To yes. perhaps create an illusion or something. Yes, I mean, it's, it's used... There's a myth about the infant Dionysus, in which he's enticed to his death by the Titans, by the use of a mirror. And this is a myth which has other features of mystic initiation in it. So the mirror is attractive. Incidentally, the mirror occurs in uh, Plotinus as well. And the, the Mime, no doubt that has origins in a mystery cult as well. Um, but of course the mirror the mirror can reveal, but it can also obscure. Ancient mirrors, of course, are much more obscure than So they were ones. polished metal sheets rather than yes, the, the yes, metal back yes. glass we have now, so they were much yes. less of a true representation. Yes, so the point is that, that people like E.R. Dodds, the esteemed editor of the Backy, reads all this stuff, and he has no clue that this is evoking mystic initiation. It's just... Well, people in tragedies behave oddly. You, know, the, the, you don't ask why, but um, 
He's not wrong, though. Well, they do behave oddly, but very often, particularly in the, in the case of Pentheus, there's a, there's a substratum of evocation of the mysteries which explains the specificity of all his odd behaviour. My point is that Dodds doesn't get it, but then neither would the uninitiated on the whole, when seeing this play, understand what's happening. But those people who've been initiated would understand. The Greeks had an expression for it, mathusin audo, I speak to those who understand, mm. which is uttered by the prologue to the Agamemnon um, in a passage which contains other allusions to mystery cult. Mm. One thing I'd like to cover in this discussion is some of the terminology, indeed, around initiation, around the mysteries, because you've just mentioned that there's a, there are kind of familiar taglines that one could say that would signal to an initiate, aha, and signal, perhaps signal to a non-initiate at best would know, oh, here go those initiated guys again with their secret, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge that I'm not privy to. So there, there are phrases like this that crop up, right? We have it in Plotinus even in one bit where he says something like, um, those who have seen will know what I'm going to, will understand what I'm going to say and those who have not will never understand, which is it's generally thought is a kind of tag, like a mystery uh, password almost. You know, um, what other terminology do we have from the mysteries? We have the mysties, of course, the mystes, the initiate. Well, we, basically, there's the, the mio words, miaing words, and then there's the telete words, groups of words. I wonder if you could just run through that. The moeo, mustes, musterion, all from the same root, and telete together constitute um, most, I think, of the terms used for mystery cult, or at least mystery cult in the narrow sense, you might also have the word orgia mm. that can refer to Dionysiac mystic initiation. But um, particularly telete and orgia can also refer to other kinds of ritual. This is part of this immense confusion which surrounds the subject of mystery cult, which can, as it were, seem, sometimes seem to expand to include a whole number of rituals which are not like the ritual as I described it. Yeah. And, um, but telete is interesting because it's related to the word telos, which means a completion, an end, but also a completion. As in the English word teleology, it comes from the same idea of having a purpose, which is a completion. It's related to that. So a, a telete um, can, does tend to refer to rituals other than mystic, initi mystic initiation. Uh, so any kind of rite of passage can be thought of as a telete or even other kinds of ritual. It makes it very difficult. Um, but nevertheless, it does tell you something about how the Greeks envisaged the mystery cult as having an end or a completion, whereas moeo is probably associated with the, the closing of the eyes. Yeah, um, so this the, the verb muein means something like to close. Yes. And yes, specifically yes. The, the eyes, maybe the mouth it might be originally. Yes, but, yes, yes. But the emphasis being that one who is so muin it also means to initiate. Yeah. So someone who's undergone this process has had their mouth or their eyes closed. Yes. Presumably this is re a reference to the secrecy of the mysteries. Yes, I don't I don't think we can be sure of that. Yeah. Because people are always inventing explanations which may not have been the original explanation. Language is very strange. I mean words can take on meanings you could never have predicted. Yeah, so you don't and know. this is actually 
as I understand it, an etymology for the, the term mu'ain, meaning to initiate, that comes down to us from antiquity. So they, the ancients, saw it as yes. deriving from this term to close. Yes, yes. Which is interesting because um, a lot of modern scholars accept this etymology, and it's very rare that we accept an etymology that the Greeks have given us. Well, maybe because we just don't have any other Possibly. explanation. I mean, telos, telete, and the verb telesthai, to be initiated, is much easier. Um, and, and those words are very common, actually, in, mm. for, as, for initiation. Now, what is this initiation, then? What more can we say about it? It's a ritual. It creates a category of initiates who are in some way distinct from non-initiates. Is there anything else we can say about an initiation in this context? Yes, I mean, initiation, like mysteries, is a term with a vast range of meaning. And it's sometimes used to refer to almost any kind of rite of passage, which is an even more general term, meaning a ritual which is not designed to change the weather or win a battle or whatever. It's designed to change the status of somebody, usually permanently, say a wedding is a rite of passage which changes the status of, say, the bride to that of a married woman. And similarly, mystic initiation is a rite of passage which changes the status of the uninitiated into the status of initiated, who has a certain relationship with the deity from then on, which ensures a happy fate in the next world. So it's a significant change of status. That structure can be applied to a whole wide range of experiences and practices. So a process in which you move, as I described earlier, from distress and anxiety and ignorance to the opposite of all those things in order to achieve permanent well-being is a structure you can use for, well, for example, medicine, just curing somebody, for example or almost any problem, serious problem, that you encounter. Um, and, and so, hence, the anarchy of terminology in this, in this sphere, because you've got a basic structure, and you can use it in many different contexts for many different deities in many different places. But as I said earlier, if you concentrate on what may seem to some people an artificially narrow conception, of mystic initiation as this way of undergoing death in order to meet it with meet death with hope when you eventually arrive there, um, then that's actually quite a central and emotional um, experience for people, which we I think have difficulty in understanding because it's virtually entirely disappeared from our own civilization. I mean, what what Christianity does in effect is get rid of animal sacrifice, which was central to ancient religion, substitute for it the metaphor of sacrifice, and it does something also similar to mystic initiation. It gets rid of it, but also replaces it at a rather more abstract level in as much as Christ is the mystery and so on. But it's left us, not just without animal sacrifice, but also, which we might think we don't need, but with a kind of gap in religious experience in what it's important for ancient human beings, which was to undergo death in this world before we actually arrive at it, to undergo a kind of fictive death which ends well, that is not something that is part of Christian or any kind of modern experience. And this is a very, very, it seems to me, a very, very significant shift. And because it has 
in antiquity that centrality and intensity, it enters into other spheres in, in ways you might not expect, um, not just in things like medicine or practical activities, but also in the whole practice of wisdom. And this is not, I think, fully understood by people who study ancient philosophy, though it's more understood now than it used to be. So that it's perfectly clear to me that Heraclitus and Parmenides, two might call the earliest philosophers, of whom something survives, albeit it's only fragments, but also Plato, of course, mm. and then on into Neoplatonism, represent, sometimes at least, the wisdom they're propounding, which we call philosophy, as mystic wisdom. It's a kind of mystic initiation which does not depend on actually performing the ritual. It's interiorized, in a sense. It's performed in the mind. And in that respect, it's interestingly like what happens to Indian sacrifice, where at a certain point, in fact, about the same time, people are saying, well, you don't actually have to perform the sacrifice. You have to, as it were, interiorize it. You think it. Um, but it's still a sacrifice in some way. Well, you have this very interesting similar development in both India and Greece. But I leave that aside. And because actually, of course, in India it's the sacrifice which corresponds with mystic initiation. Because in India it's the Vedic sacrifice which allows you to go up to heaven to prepare your place there and then come down again. Right. Which is an analogous function to what mystic initiation does. Uh, so the traditional form of wisdom in Greece before philosophy, is surely mystic initiation. I, mean, I say that with some confidence, even though we, we don't have early mentions of mystic initiation. It's not in Homer, for example, for good reasons I won't go into. Uh, but it's already there in texts in the archaic period, and particularly the Homeric hymn to Demeter. And in mystic initiation, you don't just experience in the way I've already described it, you also learn, because if you're going to have a good fate in the next world, it's going to be in the underworld, you need to know about cosmology. Right, you need it to know has, where you are, how you get yes. there. Your salvation depends on knowing about the nature of the cosmos, and that ultimately it's benign. And actually, fascinatingly, from 5th century texts, which reveal something about mystic initiation, drama basically, but particularly actually Aristophanes' frogs, where you have initiates in the underworld, there is a solidarity of the group. The initiates identify with each other, but they also identify with the heavenly bodies. So there's a unity, not only among the initiates, but also between the initiates and the cosmos. That, so, for example, there's a passage of Sophocles' Antigone in which Dionysus um, is called the chorus leader of the stars. So there he is, dancing away, surrounded by his minads, and he's the chorus leader of the stars, and they're, by implication, the stars. And there are many other passages like this. And a scholiast on that passage, an ancient commentator, has written, Catatina Musticon Logon, according to a mystic doctrine. Right. And that coheres with Aristophanes' Frogs, other texts of Euripides, several other texts, which make it clear that in mystic initiation, the initiates identify with the heavenly body. Because in this state of ecstasy, you don't only feel that the barriers between you and the next initiate are dissolved, particularly in the dance, of course, which I have to emphasize on passant was central to their experience of mystic initiation, because it's an expression of not just honor 
for the gods, but also the solidarity of the group. Um, but also the barriers between you and the cosmos are dissolved. And so that's why you can, as a dancer, become a star, one of the stars. Wonderful idea. Um, anyway, I said that in order to emphasize that mystic initiation was traditionally the context for learning about the cosmos. When the philosophers come along, they have new views about the nature of the cosmos, but they do not stop putting them in a somewhat traditional way. True of Heraclitus, Parmenides, Plato's Phaedrus, Plato's uh, Symposium in particular, but also, also other bits of Plato. And take Parmenides, for example. Parmenides is often regarded as a logician, the first philosopher, which in a sense he is, but actually what he represents, this philosophy, so-called philosophy, he doesn't use that word, this wisdom, as is words spoken to him by the goddess at the end of a journey that he's undertaken on a chariot, which is controversial, but pretty clear to me, is a journey to the underworld. And there's other features of his text which make it clear that this is a kind of mystic initiation. The, the mention of the hodos, the way. The ways. For example, there are two ways you can go. Mm. There's a way of being and a way of non-being. Similarly, the gold leaves, which are found in tombs in southern Italy and Sicily, and Parmenides was from southern Italy, and these, these gold leaves are not much later than Parmenides. They also say there are two ways in the underworld. There's a way you should go and the way you shouldn't go. Um, and, of course, uh, what you mustn't do is um, go to a certain spring and drink the waters of forgetfulness. Which also that, mean, that means you have to be reincarnated again. And that's all in this mystic text, which are instructions given to the dead about how to conduct themselves in the next world. And they were probably, but this is verse, hexameters, uttered in the ritual of mystic initiation. So these are rather, these are terrific bits of evidence for what went on in mystic initiation, because they weren't for public consumption. Mm. They were written on gold, and they were put in the tomb with the dead person, and they contained formulae, which it seems almost certain were uttered during the ritual of mystic initiation. So the gold leaves, starting about 400 BC, are absolutely crucial for understanding what goes on. Do you feel that there's any relationship with that kind of text, which you might call a primary source, a rare and wonderful glimpse into the primary sources of actual mystical ritual text, and the Orphic texts, for example, which are uh, what we know from the, the Derveni papyrus that people were reading at least one of these so-called Orphic poems as though it has a hidden meaning. It's written with enigma, quite an early, in the so 5th century BCE, probably. And many of the aspects of the where the um, where it was found and the references and the terminology and stuff made people think it's somehow associated with mystery cult. Yes, indeed. So like that text also was, of course, put in a tomb. Yeah. And that's why it's, it survived. Um, it wasn't for public consumption. As you say, what he does, it, it takes a narrative of the origins of the world, which involves personal gods, Zeus and, and all the rest of it, a traditional mythological narrative, and gives it a philosophical, in inverted commas, explanation. The argument is this narrative is actually a riddle, so Zeus is, is air or some physical element and so on with other deities. Mm. 
So what it really is, according to the commentator, so the text consists of the poems quoted by the commentator, who then explains it, is um, a riddling account of the cosmos in, in physical terms. But that's not just for the sake of science. This is put in a tomb with the dead individual, rather as the girl leaves were, and it, it, it mentions mystic initiation. So this is clearly a in mystic initiatory context in which it is imagined that this narrative poem is, is a riddle. I said earlier that riddles were used in mystic initiation. So it's not a coincidence that you have this attitude then to the narrative poem, that it's riddling, it reveals the truth, but you don't get to it immediately. And this also relates to what I was saying earlier about the initial phase of mystic initiation being one of ignorance and anxiety, and the later phase being one of knowledge. And the riddle is a bridge, as it were, between the two, because initially you're puzzled by the riddle, and then later on you understand fully. So yes, you're absolutely right about the Devaney Papyrus. In terms of the narrative arc of this episode of the podcast, we've probably reached the point of having passed through um, confusion and reached a point of illumination and uh, acceptance of our lot. So I'd like to thank Richard Seaford once again for coming on and tell the rest of our uh, elite initiate audience to stay esoteric. <laughs>